head to the rest right. of the map. We are all we, we um left off, I think, last week. We had been working through um well, we were in James one. I, I'm gonna let you okay. Um, I didn't really feel like we exhausted James one. I know we were there and we were talking about it. And I know you kind of worked through 13. Yeah, let me go. You're you're correct. I think we left. uh, We didn't get to that. We didn't get down to the part where every man is enticed and all that stuff. We we left off a little bit higher than that. And and by the way, just saw Scott. Scott Beck said he'd help keep an eye out, an eye out on the list for prayer requests tonight, and I would appreciate that, Scott. That is helpful when both of us are involved in delivering the class. So, thank you, Scott. Thank you, Scott. So we're in James chapter one, and just to bring you up to speed, we talked quite a bit about. That's wrong date. Um, really, we talked about pre-temptation things. We talked about <laughs> other matters, kind of leading us into it. So we talked about um, human nature. Uh, we talked uh, uh, we talked about mysticism and uh, what it's not. Our nature is not fallen. So we talked about a lot of other things that kind of is the background you need to really understand temptation to get us on a good solid footing that kind of dovetails nicely into verse 14. And so um, I'm going to say it this way, Jonathan. You can tell me what you think about it. Verse 13 excludes God from tempting us to sin. That would be correct, sir. So if that's correct, then verse 14 places the burden responsibility for temptation on us. Is that equally fair? I would agree with that as well. Um, And, you know, you and I talked, we don't... The, the, the whole topic of Satan is probably a different topic to go down, but um, notice who's not not notice who's not mentioned anywhere in this process. That's not to deny. Obviously, he is the temp, Bible actually refers to him as the tempter, but notice at least within within the point that James is making, he's not here, and I think that's significant. I would agree, and and I think the expressions in verse thirteen and fourteen to start the verses is um, are are universal statements. So verse thirteen opens with "Let no." I think the King James says, "Let no man say." ESV, "Let no one say." The point is, whatever follows, no person gets to say it. That's James. Do you want the King James or NASB? No, no, no. This is fine. I was just saying that that. The, this universal in either either translation. No one gets to say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. That's a, a universal statement. And in contrast with that, verse 14 says, but each person. So you go equally universal in its scope and nature. Um, you mentioned last week something I hadn't thought about it, but it was interesting when you said it, and that is that we will be tempted. There are two wins then in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted. I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted. Even I'm sorry, not two and 13. There's one and 14, one and 13. And the first win is when he is tempted. Mm-hmm. And verse 14 says, but each person is tempted when? Mm-hmm. So there is a, a a sense in which, okay, you are tempted, but you can't say it's God. No one can say that. On the other hand, each person is tempted, and here is when the temptation occurs. 
when he is lured away and enticed by his own desire. I, I don't know how the scripture could say that more plainly than to inevitably place the responsibility and burden of temptation in the hands of every individual human being. Right. Which then, if, if and when we get a chance to talk about overcoming it, then we would come back to this very verse and talk about unraveling the lust issue. Be because it is our strong says of lust, our longing or craving for the forbidden. We don't have a right to it. It's not ours, but we want it. We have no right to have it. And at the very least, we shouldn't use it in the way we're trying to use it. We are lusting after that which we have no right to have. Now, I just yeah. think there's a whole study in that itself yeah. that, that boils down to each individual person, uh, their upbringing, their, their environment, their learning, their practices, and all yeah. of those things that brings them to the person that they are in their lives. Yeah. Your thoughts? In the, in the study I'm doing in the mornings uh, on Romans, the subtitle I've given the study is Romans, the, the, the gospel inside out. Um, and the reason I titled it that way is because I believe that's what ultimately what the book of Romans is about. Um, there are two ways you can live your life. Um, and those two ways Paul refers to as um, either, um, well, he refers to as flesh and spirit. Focus on the flesh, focus on the spirit. Um, you could substitute, you could substitute the, uh, faith for spirit as well. Uh, but it's, it, and, and the, the, the distinction is the difference between trying to work your life outside in versus trying to work your life inside out. Uh, most people, and, uh, and not to get off topic, which we're talking most people, most people in the world live their lives outside in. Um, when Paul uses that expression, the elemental spirit of the world, uh, other places, elemental principle of the world, Galatians 4, Colossians 2, other places as well. I believe that's what Paul is talking about. He's talking about people that, like at the end of Colossians 2, submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, to try to try to control their actions, which is what we do. You want, you want to lose weight, and I did step on the scale the other day, and yeah, I probably am. I guess not good. It's not good. Um, but what do we do? We turn to a new diet, right? What is a diet? A diet is a regimen. I'm going to control the actions of my body by submitting it to some form of discipline. I'm not going to eat this thing. I'm not going to eat that thing. I'm only going to eat certain hours of the day. I'm going to, you know, jump on my left leg three times and my right leg two times before I take a bite because my metabolism works. We do things like that. Okay. It never, it, it never works, or at least it very rarely works. Um, Paul says in the end of Colossians 2, those things have an appearance of wisdom in creating um, a self-made religion. And, and the, I think the King James has maybe will worship there, mm -hmm. but a worship of the will. Um, self-made religion, self-righteousness. I will make myself better by controlling the deeds of the body and submitting to regulations. That's the way the world works. Um, the gospel does not. And neither did the old law, truth be told. Mm -hmm. Both were both were systems of faith that required the engagement of the mind and the spirit. And that's why Paul at the end of Romans 12 says, therefore, 
after everything I've said, first 11 chapters, trying to prove this point to you, therefore, what you're supposed to do is um, be transformed, not conformed, but transformed by the renewal of the mind. I say all that to say this. That's what James is talking about here. Lust is not outside in. So often we blame the outside stuff for it. Even as you know, even Satan, we blame Satan made me do it, or this made me do it, or that made me do it, or whatever. We we focus outside in, and our solution to solving temptation is to remove the outside stimuli. If I have a, a weakness for ice cream, what do I do? Is I try to keep all the ice cream out of my house, but yet somehow I keep finding myself in front of ice cream. We try, to, we try to fix it outside in. And temptation is not outside in. Temptation is inside out. Um, temptation ultimately reveals who you really are. That's, 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 that's as simple. It's not a statement about your circumstances. It's not a statement about your world. And obviously those things impact your life. I'm not saying they don't. But in the end, temptation comes from within. And it reveals who you are in terms of your character. Uh, the level of transformation that you have toward the will of God or not. I think that's why at some point it's important to, to start and where we are. And that is you have to first understand it. You have to understand what's happening. You have to understand who you are. You have to understand uh, why you're reaching for what you're reaching. You, you know, somewhere it starts early in life. I don't know exactly where. I don't know if it's a matter of trauma. I don't know if it's a matter of just Lust, I, I don't know what it is, but at some point in life, everybody starts to reach for something to fix a spiritual issue. Mm -hmm. You reach for a material thing to solve a spiritual problem. And in the short term, it sure appears to work. I got hurt today. And so I reached for this and I felt better. Yep. Um, I was disappointed. I didn't get what I wanted. And so I did this and I felt better. Over time, that thing becomes a go-to mechanism that pretty soon, if you're not, it happens to everybody. You don't need after a while, the stimuli. You don't need to be hurt to reach for it. You just enjoy it. You don't mm -hmm. need a bad day to reach for it. Over time, that thing turns on you. And now you can't stop it at least easily if you wanted to. You've become dependent. You've become addicted. And unfortunately, we only like to use those words with hard, illegal drugs and substances like that when the reality is anything can over time and use for these solving these spiritual issues become something to which I'm addicted. And um, it, 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 sometimes it can be people. I mean, it can be you know, obviously any kind of hobbies, uh, just any, anything that is, 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 you know, playing golf, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> anything that's just used as escapism to try and get rid of, to get rid of it and it, and it becomes habitual. And yeah, yeah. I mean, it's amazing what you can do that with. And so you went, Again, when we start talking about unraveling it, and that's the kind of work you got to do. And you, one of the first things you got to do is not be the addict and deny it. You know, that's one of the first things. It's not, and that's not a problem. Well, that's exactly what addicts say. That's exactly mm -hmm. what an addict would say. I don't have a problem. And secondly, 
I can quit whenever I want to. Of course you can. I just don't want to. That's quickly followed usually. But I just don't want to stop. But, uh, you know, it happens and it happens to everybody. James is saying at the very least, the place to start is to understand you are the source of your temptation. It's you. Mm -hmm. It's it's not outside of you. It's not this big, bad, evil world. It's not. It's us, every one of us. Verse 15 then follows with what happens. As we said last week, being tempted is not a sin. We know that because Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Uh, Hebrews 4, 1 Peter 2. And so when we are confronted with it, when we are face to face with it, as we heard last night concerning the gospel, this would be face to face with temptation. If it is not short circuited, then verse 15 happens. You want to take us through that? Uh, yeah, 15. Uh, when the desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. Um, you know, eventually, um, you know, it, it comes out. I was listening to um, uh, Brandon Blankenship this, this afternoon as he was doing his class. He was talking about the same topic. Um, his illustration was the the concept over Matthew chapter five. Whosoever looks upon a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And his point was very, very, very succinctly: if you keep looking at that woman and you keep looking at that woman and you keep looking at that woman, eventually, assuming she would say yes to you, <laughs> eventually, you're going to act upon it. It comes out. Um, it grows. And and generally, these you know sins of of just um, you know, I they, they would call them crimes of passion in the legal world, I think. But, you know, there, there are times when things just bubble over and you just lose control and you do something and you're like, oh, wait, wait. Okay, that's probably a little bit different than what James is talking about here. Um, but very often, these things are progressive in that sense. It, it takes time for the for the the idea to formulate the, the plan to, to kind of coalesce and then sometimes it takes the courage to um uh, to act upon it to do it um you know i, I heard uh, i think it's guy in woods maybe maybe it was in his commentary on first john or maybe heard him at a questions and answers or something uh, whosoever hates his brother is a murderer and brother woods um basically said there's only two things that separate a murderer uh from a hater and that the, the, and that is a courage and opportunity um you may you know Whoever's in the White House, you may not like that individual, and you may think, I hate that individual, and I'd like to kill him. Well, you're probably not going to get a chance because they're pretty well protected. You're probably not going to get the chance. And even if you had the chance, most of us wouldn't do it because we're too cowardly. We don't want to get shot. So we don't do it. But if the, if you could remove those two obstacles, a person who genuinely hates somebody else would do it. Um, and, so, and it's often the case with sin, too. Uh, I need to find a way to do it or nobody else finds out about it or whatever the case is, but it germinates. And if you hold it in your heart long enough, it, 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 it begins to grow. Uh, and that's the kind of the process you just described earlier is, is even something that may not in and of itself be sinful. It can, if that desire continues to, to foment, it can it, it absolutely, you know, take you down that path. And then sin, uh, when it is fully grown brings forth death. Um, Sin when it is fully grown. Now, I don't believe here he's talking just about a, a again a momentary action of sin. Um, uh, you know, there's First John one would describe that process somewhat differently. Um, uh, the 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 man of the of the momentary sin um, 
walk kind of continues to walk in the light. Uh, James seems to be discussing here in 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 the I think in somewhat the proverbial language of James. Uh, he, he's giving you a a survey of a process, not necessarily all the detail involved in it and all the different potential ways that you can get to this point. But when you fully allow, give in to that desire, leave it unchecked so that it begins to roll to, to rule and, and to control the actions, you end up holding on to a sin that you now love. Um, and the, the end of that, um, the end of that's death. Um, it could be physical death because sometimes your sins will kill you, or it could be in the end, the second death of Re Revelation chapter 20. Um, could absolutely be either of those. But uh, the point is, if you give in to sin, and, I, and this would be the overall point that I would take from it, if you give in to your lust, rather, and you allow that to uh, continue to foment within you, there's no off-ramp, okay? There, there's only one outcome described here. And, and that is that is your end, your your, your downfall, um, because that's that's the process that happens. If you do not control the temptation, the lust rather that is inside you that is causing you to be tempted, if you don't short circuit that enticement to your own lust, it's not as if there's some kind of secondary outcome here. The only outcome is going to be ultimately your uh, ultimately your spiritual demise. Yeah, you could. Um... You can start a, a, a pattern of life that leads you to, as Paul describes it, dead in sins and trespasses, too. You mm -hmm. can just get into a habit that mm -hmm. is hard to get out of. Uh, and for some people, feeling impossible to get out of. Uh, the boy left his father's house and ended up in a pig's pen. I don't think that was his destination when he left. Um, Not what he intended. No. Man. I, I will say, you know, and the reason I, I want to point out that this is not a, a universal discussion of of all the possible things um i hear people go to romans chapter seven and that war that's in the members in romans uh, chapter seven and nearly every time i've heard that chapter taught in a sermon or um in a bible class or something of the, of the nature i hear that passage discussed as if um <clears throat> that is the universal state of you know the the inevitable the unavoidable condition of humanity that there is always this war going on inside of me that the good that I want to do I cannot do and so on um, you know Paul the same writer who wrote Galatians seven last time I checked wrote or wrote Romans seven rather the last time I checked wrote Galatians five and <clears throat> in Galatians five he says and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The, the Roman seven is not the universal state of humanity. If you walk around in your life with a continual division of, even as chapter five says earlier in, in, um, um, in Galatians, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit against the flesh, for they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want. And then about seven verses later, he says, if you belong to Christ, you've crucified that division. See, this, this is not a good thing, okay? First of all, I don't think the word spirit there is a reference to the Holy Spirit. I think it's your own personal spirit, but that's another topic, and we're not studying Galatians. Just trying to make a point here. We read verse 17 and verse 18, or verse 17 here is, is, is particularly, just as we read Romans chapter 7, as if that is the normative condition of the Christian. Shouldn't be. This 
is the normative condition of the Christian. If, if, if this is your normative state, if this is you every day, there's something else you need to learn. That transformation of Romans chapter 12 has not taken place. Okay. You should be here. That's where your goal is. That's the state. And that's the power of the gospel. It can cause that to happen through the transformation, the renewal of the mind. So anyway. I would add alongside of that. And again, as we talk about processes and how these things work, uh, Ephesians 4, 17 to the end of that chapter, where Paul talks about learning Christ, taking off the old man, being renewed in the mind, putting on the new man, and the subsequent change of life and actions as a result of that. And so that's the, 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 the way this change occurs. But again, I would urge part of the challenge is acknowledging and admitting that it's you and it's mm -hmm. coming from within you and then not transferring your struggle to a blanket statement of everybody's struggles. There are some people who have absolutely no struggle with what you're struggling with. Mm -hmm. They have no, it affects them in no way. Well, everybody loses their temper. There are some people who hadn't lost their temper in 25 years. Yep. Everybody just, you know, everybody uh, takes a little bit of something that doesn't belong to them. Well, that's not, listen, you, you don't want to go around excusing your issue by blanketing everybody else. So whatever somebody else's issue is, it's theirs and they've got to work on that. But what you and I want to do is you got to do the work that's centered in you. You, if you are struggling with temptation, it's because you have, and I'm going to urge, I don't have any scientific data on this, but I just don't believe <laughs> that you just fall out of the sky and, uh, and, and, and just tempted by something. Uh, I'm thinking it's use. I'm thinking it's a thought, a desire, something of the mind that you have had some contact with. I've never wanted or been tempted to rob a bank. I've just never. Uh, because I, I just know this is that ends badly. There's no win there. I don't want to go to jail and I don't want the money that bad. I could get shot. I could go to jail. The money's not. Now, somebody is right now all over the world. Believe it or not, somebody's in a room planning a bank heist. Yep. No, not that's not my, you won't get me with that one. But I don't console myself by saying, since I don't rob banks, then I'm just going to keep on doing what I do struggle with. No, you got to do the work on yourself. It is from the inside out. And at some point, you got to own you and come face to face with Jesus and say, Lord, I'm using this thing. This thing has got now a hold on me. I'll say this and I'll let you jump back in. It's one of the reasons also I don't think people are tempted every day, all day by a hundred different things. I just don't think it works that way. No, I, I don't. I, and, uh, you know, I, I I remember it was, it, I think it was Keith Moser. Um, it was early in, in our, I think it was our first year uh, at Memphis. And he, he was, he was on this topic and he, I remember him saying something along the lines of, um, you know, talking about, I, when people say I sin every day. And, and, and he, his point was why, why do you sin every day? Um, and, you know, and so I think he actually went around the room, you know, and, and did something along the lines. I can't remember exactly what he did, but it was something along the lines of, 
you know, I, I want to say he got on Brian Jenkins for something. I think it was Brian he started calling out. Um, and he said, uh, he basically was asking Brian, did you send today? Have you sent today so far? Have you? Because <laughs> you got to know Keith to understand. He, he, he was a bunch, he's a button pusher from way back. Uh, but his point's valid is, is that, no, you shouldn't be tempted by a hundred things every single day. If you're, you're doing it wrong, if, if, if you are, uh, and, and there's some work that needs to be done. The, the, the mind can, that's what the scripture says. The mind can be transformed. It doesn't have to stay what it is. Now I understand you like in the 12 step programs where they, they never like they're talking to themselves about being an alcoholic. They'll never say I was an alcoholic. Okay. I, I, I get the practical benefit of that because that's such so easy to fall back into and so on i get it but from a broad perspective that's also somewhat debilitating and that's not what scripture says another thing keith i always he always hated hearing people say that i'm a sinner saved by grace you know his point was no you shouldn't be you should be a christian saved by grace um and, and we're supposed to get better at this but what you were saying before, the core of it is you've got, you have to first be honest with yourself. It's not the world doing this to me. Even if, you know, even if I've had a really bad bring, upbringing, even if I've been a, a victim of trauma and of abuse and so on, it still comes down, unless there's some kind of physiological problem and that goes beyond what we're talking about. Because there are some people that are just broken. Uh, you know, the, the, the chemical imbalance or, or, or a physical problem you know that happens uh and the the soul is is encased inside of a body that can't process the world properly okay that happens but for normal for most people the majority of people maybe a better word than normal that's not the case we can overcome those things and it starts right here with this understanding temptation comes from within i i am i i control that I, i am in charge of that that I, you know, the lesson is learned from Genesis three, uh, with the first sin. Uh, you talked about the process, and we looked at that last week. Mm -hmm. uh, it's important because that's again how you can get out. I, the, the the way to 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 stop the process is to appreciate you're in the process. Uh, and, and and everybody does some level of thinking. I think Mark seven twenty one through twenty three teaches very plainly that we think before we sin. So out of the heart of man proceed evil thoughts. And then the Lord talks about actions. They proceed adulteries, fornications, thefts, murders, covetous, wickedness, lascivity. All these things come from within and they defile a man. Well, that's because that process is at work. I think about it and give an opportunity, I do it. And frankly, it's not really our topic, but since we're here, it's a challenge when you have such access to the things that are stimulating to you. Absolutely. It's, I, I mean, it is an unreal challenge when you talk about not being able to do it from the outside in, you know, what are you going to do? Break the television, break the computer, break the phone, um, break, I mean, you if you tried to do it that way, Whew, I don't know what you could do in our world today. I mean, the, the, the availability, the stimuli, the, the ever-present nature of all the things are what keep it before us all the time. It's exceedingly. And, and, and uh, you know, you, you would end up 
recreating the monastic societies uh, and the nunneries of, of, of Catholicism. That would be your only option. Uh, and, and we see how well that has worked there. It, it, it's even in a mon monastic society, I guarantee you, there, there are still individuals, men in those societies, um, engaging in illicit activities because you haven't solved the root problem. The root problem is not external. The root problem is always, inter is always internal. But your point's 100% valid. Um, you can't, you know, you can't be an alcoholic and go to the club. You can't. You, can, you can't be the alcoholic and, and hang out with a bunch of guys that drink. You're just, you have to know yourself about that. You have to know. Um, and, 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 yeah. That's part of the change of the mind. We're going to circle back to all of that, though. Let's go over and look at the Lord's temptation. I think there's something to learn there about temptation. It's recorded in Matthew 4. It's recorded in Luke 4. You want Matthew? Uh, who, who you want? Uh, I don't guess it matters. Let's. Matthew is the one most, most frequently done, I suppose. <clears throat> so our Lord is tempted. Um, we got time. Let's read it. Then we'll come back and talk about it. Jesus was led, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and they shall bear you up. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kings of the world and the glory. He said to them, all these I give you. If you will fall down and worship me, then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. <clears throat> then the devil left him. Behold, angels came and were ministering to him. All right. So. I used to read this passage and wonder, I used to hear people say, and the Lord answered every temptation with, it is written, it is written, it is written. I was like, yeah, he did, but it seemed to have nothing to do with what I just read. So one of the things that's helpful, I think, when reading these accounts is to go back and read the place from which Jesus quoted because each quote has something to do with the specific temptation Satan set before the Lord. Uh, one more thing we might add before we go further, and uh, you can let me know, I think, again, you agree with this or not, and that is, I don't believe it can be rightly called a temptation if you can't do it. If you can't do it, I don't know how it can be tempting you to do it. So one of the things that makes temptation temptation is the thing is not simply desired. The thing is possible. The thing is, is, is you're, you have the ability to do it, as you were talking about uh, the murderer and the hater of his brother. Uh, you, you, you have to have the ability. Well, uh, with regards to our Lord, and contextually, the Bible says he was hungry. He was hungry. And so the temptation is, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. Well, the Lord can do that. 
you know, if, if he couldn't turn the stone to bread, it's not much of temptation, but he actually could. And so here is something with regards to uh, satisfying the flesh, physical hunger. And Jesus says, it is written. And then he quotes Deuteronomy 6. So let's um, go back. I'm sorry, go ahead, Jay. I'm not, or I, I'm not exactly sure what you're going to say next, but the question I always get or have, have gotten about this, this particular temptation in, in, in specifics, is that um, here's a hungry man and he's going to feed him. Where's the sin in that? That's what makes the Lord's answer so important, I think. Okay. Because the Lord quotes a passage back in Deuteronomy 6, where in the context of Deuteronomy 6, um, well, down at about verse number, uh, oh, where's the verse? You shall, man shall live. I'm sorry, it's Deuteronomy 8. My apologies. Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy 8. Let's start at verse number 1. The whole, I'm sorry. Verse 1? Yes, let's start there. Okay. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know uh, what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So let's read a couple of passages further. Your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commands of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. I think... In Deuteronomy 8, Moses is saying to the children of Israel that you need to trust God to provide, that he has provided, and he did the things that he did to test your heart, to see whether or not you would trust him and to walk in his ways. And so he led you through the wilderness would you trust him to provide? He fed you manna. He clothed you. They didn't wear out. He humbled you so that you would know that man does not live by bread alone. So I'm thinking that that's the Lord's point. Yes, I'm hungry. Yes, I can turn it to bread. Will my father provide for me? Satan's question is, if you're the son of God, do it for yourself. You prove it. And I think the Lord's response harkens back here where 
God takes care of his children. Will God take care of Jesus? I think the Lord is saying, I have trusted my father. I will trust my father. Mm -hmm. I think that's what's happening. Yeah. And to take, to take that divine power, which is, is to be used as a, a mean of, of glorifying God and to turn it inward to, 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 to satiate his own hunger is a violation of, of, of this principle that's here. Um, he led them by the hand day by day, gave them food on a daily basis. And I think that part that he says there, he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Um, he, he fed you in a way you would, you never anticipated. You, you, you know, you didn't, this is food unknown to you. Um, and yeah, uh, you, you need to, there was a promise that was made. You know, when, when the food comes, there's, a, there's an inherent promise in that and, and a plan for how you gather it and how, how much you can gather and, and so on. Um, and the, the, the parallel to the life of Jesus, I think is, 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 is fairly straightforward as you were saying, uh, it's, it's instead of trusting God, he was, you were going to short circuit that and, and effectively take the glory away from God <laughs> because even the, the daily meal, the daily bread is a sign of the, of the, of the, the, the faithfulness, the, the constancy of God. And if you short circuit that. Um, in the position that Jesus is in, instead of showing glory to the Father, which which is which was his mission, um, you know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There, there, he in in his earthly ministry, there's a role that he's playing, and if he takes that glory for himself, he violates the role. And since that is the lust of the flesh, I think that speaks to that specific temptation. In the satisfying of the lust of the flesh, that seems to be the problem, that I am doing it for myself with no trust in God. I am doing something that takes his glory. I'm, I'm, I'm doing the very thing here that our Lord said, instead of trusting in God, I, I'm giving in to my lust to do something for myself. And, and you stopped in verse number six or seven there, but keep on reading down to the next section. After you get through this, this discussion about being disciplined, look at like verse seven, where he says, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, springs and, and valleys and hills and barley and wheat and so on. And then verse nine, a land in which you will eat uh, bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, stones which are um, a, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you will dig copper and you shall eat and be full and you shall bless the Lord your God for, for the good land that he has given you. You don't do verse nine until you understand verse number four or three. Until you've learned that you don't live by bread alone, you know, it, it's, and now you're about to get everything. It's, you know, it's like that, the, 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 you know, cliched rich, rich spoiled kid of rich parents, you know, a kid of rich parents. Who always had the nice cars, always lived in the big house, always has all these things, and then doesn't appreciate them because there was no no discipline, no instruction about how you take the blessings that you've been given. Mm -hmm. And what you should be doing is taking the blessings that you have been given and thanking oh, God for the good land to which he's brought you. Uh, if Jesus just responds to Satan and makes bread, he takes the glory for himself. He doesn't, he doesn't do that process. On the other hand, when he takes five loaves and two fish and turns them into a, a, to a feast, you have an entirely different, same action, effectively the same action. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Highly different outcome. One under, uh, 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 you know, honors this principle. The other is a complete violation of it. Absolutely. There's a prayer to God, a giving of thanks, glorification of God on the other. That's certainly something for us to learn relative to this particular temptation, I think. Yeah. There was a quick question as you turn back to Luke chapter four. We talked about it last week, though, but to answer it for Melissa, she said, God doesn't tempt us, but he does. He test us today. Uh, the conclusion last week, Melissa, was no. Uh, I, I don't want to speak for Jonathan. I think I said no. I think Jonathan agreed with me. At the very least, there is no way for me with any level of accuracy to tell you something that God did to test your faith without revelation from God. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, in, in any discernible manner, my answer is going to be the same as Eric's, is no. Because I think we talked about this last week. In order to, in order for there to be a test, there has to be a grade. You know, there has to be a pass-fail at the end of this thing. Yeah. And, and that's what we're lacking. Um, and so, you know, I've heard people say this all the time, you know, they get, they get, you know, when Hurricane Harvey hit Houston and my house got flooded, I didn't do it because it's not the way I think about these things, but sometimes you know, something like that will happen. Somebody asks, some will say, well, why is God testing me? Or what, what, what's God, God trying to teach me? Okay. Yes, there were some members of the Lord's church, some Christians who, who houses got destroyed and flooded in Hurricane Harvey back in back a few years ago in, in Houston. But somewhere in the neighborhood of 100,000 houses got flooded. And probably 99% of those were not members of the church. What about the other ninety nine thousand houses? You know, it, it's it, it's it's not. So that, that that's what you get. The factory shuts down in the city. What's God testing me for? Well, what about everybody else that lost their job? And sometimes we do that because we are sensitive to wanting to please God and 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 trying to make right choices and so on. We often then transfer those tragedies back up to God. I get diagnosed with cancer. What's God trying to teach me? Well, what about the other 3 million people this year that get diagnosed with exactly the same cancer across the world? The time and chance happens to every man. Now, is it possible God could be doing something somewhere? Sure. I'm, I'm not going to tie the hands of God. He's sovereign. And last time I checked, he can do pretty much whatever he wants. He's just not telling me about it. And if he doesn't tell me about it, I'm going to have a real hard time Trying to and, and as I as I talk this as I talk teach about providence, I I, I I'll go down that that same illustration and I'll, and I'll say you know if if God has a plan for my life if He has something you know I'm living in Florida if He wants me living in Nebraska please please don't want me to live in Nebraska <laughs> but if He wants me to live in Nebraska He's not sending me an email He's not sending me a text He's not sending me a, a, a note in a dream. If he wants me to live in Alaska, guess whose problem that is? It's not mine. It's his. And I'm not going to sit around thinking, well, I wonder if he wants me to live in Alaska. No. I mean, that's that's the thing. It's his problem if he's not going to tell me what his plan is. And he doesn't because that's not, not, not the way revelation works any longer. So in general, I'm going to answer you. I'm going to agree with you on that. If, if anything is going on, I'll never know about it. And so the effect is... The effect of the answer is no, because I can't I can't know it. I, I think part of the challenge is that we read it in scripture and then we project it outside of scripture. 
I mean, we know what we know because God said it in scripture. That's why we know it. If he didn't say it in scripture, we wouldn't know it. And the only reason the people in scripture know it is because he said it to them. Uh, Abraham doesn't leave Ur on his own. <laughs> he just he just doesn't wake up and say, you know what? I'm leaving my parents and leave my family. Nobody does. It's not what he did. He left because God said leave. And even then, as we read in scripture, that's another thing that kind of amazes me. Even when we read the scriptures, when we project out, we kind of make it better than it is inside of the text itself. We have this notion almost that if he did talk to us, we would all obey instantly. Well, sometimes God said, do something, and people effectively said no. Uh, Abraham was slow on the move. Uh, he talked to Solomon twice about the women. Still did it. I mean, you think if he appeared to you once about it and he told you, you think the second time, surely that was squared away. But no, he still did it. And in Jeremiah 6, 16, they just flat out said, we will not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Some of that. I mean, so it's it's not like people think it is. You know, it just doesn't. This doesn't work that way, even in scripture when we're reading. Yeah. Uh, Valletta puts up Proverbs 17, 3, and I don't know the quotation right off the top of my head, but um, I guess that's why I have a Bible on the screen, isn't it? Um, Her <laughs> um, comment is um, the crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and the Lord detests hearts. Um, and my initial response I, to that kind of statement is the Lord does test your heart every single day that you live. Okay. When he says that, you know, um, anything out of Colossians three, anything out of first Corinthians six, Galatians chapter five, any of those type passages where he says, okay, do this, not do that. Put, put this to death, put on that, Colossians 3, that whole section. Anytime he does that, guess what he's doing to you? There's a test in front of you. There's a spiritual test in front of you every single time that he says, I want you to act one way and not another. I view that very much differently than God putting a specific test in front of me to see the, the degree of faithfulness that I have, okay? Um you know, he, that, that attractive woman, God did not bring that attractive woman into my life to see whether or not I would be faithful to Jew. That's, that's just, that's, that's far different than Jesus saying, don't look at a woman to lust after her, uh, uh, after her, um, don't do that. Okay. That's far different because now that attractive woman's in my life and she puts a, you know, that, that's okay. It's there. I, I, I can't, I can't not see her. How am I going to respond to that? You know, that that's a it's the call of scripture that's a far different matter. And it does absolutely put you to the test every single day that you live. There, there is um, we just read that God doesn't tempt anybody with sin. And so it's important to appreciate if God did that, that would be a problem with James. Uh, but the the idea of what we shouldn't do is what's often done. And that is we shouldn't start with the results in our lives and work backward to God. Mm, good point. Good point. That seems to be what happens. We're, we're going along fine and then something happens and then we decide God is testing me through this mechanism. Well, that's not how tests worked in scripture. 
uh, we just read in Deuteronomy 6, the Lord brought you this way. Well, I think in, uh, earlier in the book of Exodus, it was because they weren't ready for war. They mm -hmm. were a warring nation. And so he took them the longer way. And that longer way uh, certainly did create challenges and struggles for them. But, but Moses says he humbled you. He tested you to see if you would. Well, there's the test. And they're told this is what it was. And, this, and, and then you have the manna and you're told the gathering. You have Genesis 22. You're told offer your son. None of those people started with the results and worked backward. It's interesting. Joseph never says, wonder what God is trying to teach me with Miss Potiphar. Joseph doesn't think that. He thinks it's wrong and he flees. Mm -hmm. Joseph, Joseph doesn't spend any time saying, I wonder why God is putting this woman in my life every day. That's not, that's not the way it's thought of in scripture. So somehow we have decided I don't know where we got the idea that when things happen, bad or otherwise, that it is of necessity a test from God. And then we try to figure out on our own what he is trying to teach us, though we get no instruction and information from him on the subject. Which is really, really yeah, bad. A lot of that just comes down to... Um... Well, I, I think there's two causes, probably more than two, but two pop in my mind immediately. One is is simply, uh, um, I think I heard somebody this week call it the Elijah complex, where we uh, um, just have this um, sense of 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 singularity oh. in oh. our approach to the text. I mean, it's Elijah's alone in this. Elijah's the only one there. And we kind of do that with the Bible text. There's a we make a one-to-one -one comparison between Elijah and ourselves, Abraham and ourselves, Joseph and ourselves. We put ourselves in those positions and we try to learn the lessons, not in principle, but in specific about those people. And those people, to use the to quote the Blues Brothers here, they're on a mission from God. And a very specific mission from God. To, they, 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 they're going, or Abraham's going to the promised land. Joseph is sent to Egypt for a reason. Uh, 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 Joshua's walking around the city for a reason. Every one of those goes back to something we don't have. And you got to be really careful, really careful, because there's only one Abraham in the world. Only one. And none of those other people, even, you know, I was talking to my dad. Oh, it's almost top of the hour. Um, I was talking to my dad, I guess, yesterday. Uh, Thursday on the morning program that we do. Um, and we were talking about the genealogies of uh, particularly post-flood. And I, I know we've talked about this in the past. I know you've done that before. You work out the the um, the dating of the genealogies. Abraham or Noah is very likely alive in the for the first few years of Abraham's life. Maybe depending on how you piece it together, maybe for as many as 70 years of Abraham's life, Noah's alive. Shem lives for 500 years or so after the flood. Most people are alive. Okay, Noah, a hundred years before, was somebody special. Building an ark, four hundred and some odd years building an ark. Noah was the focus of the Bible. Noah continues to live, and I assume Shem, Ham, and Japheth were there helping him build the ark. So they're part of that small group of people, eight people all together, including the wives, building the ark. They get off the ark 
And in terms of the biblical story, guess what? They're not anymore. They're not special. We don't know a thing about their lives. They were alive when Abram is called. Not, they're not special. Abram is now special. The entire focus of the world is now on Abram and Abraham and Sarah. Until he offers up Isaac in Genesis 22. And then you turn to Genesis 23. Abraham lives up until 20, the sons of Keturah are 25. So is it 25? Abraham lives to chapter 25, but guess who chapters 23 and 24 are about? Abraham's no longer special. The friend of God is no longer special. He just gets to go, the, the remaining years of his life, he just gets to go live them. And in that sense, there's no record that God ever speaks to him again. There's no record there's, uh, that any of that, it, it, he lives his, the rest of his life as far as we have record, just like we do today. And I think we miss that. I think we read these characters as if, even in Abraham's life, the, the, the book that I wrote, Becoming God's Friend, looks at the times God appears to, to, to Abraham, seven times. Abraham lives 100 years before Isaac's born. Seven times in 100 years. Eight, if you say there are two callings, one in Mesopotamia, one out of Haran. But somewhere between seven and eight times, God appears to Abraham in 100 years. That's a lot of days where Abraham lived, just like we do. And I, I think we, because we read it in such a short period of time, I think we miss that. And I'll not get to my other calls because I talked too long there. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, listen, you're about to get me on the will of God and the two lines that I draw and all those sorts of things. Because I think that's, I think that all dovetails. And that's the thing about any Bible discussion. It's hard to have a singular Bible discussion because the Bible is so unified. Uh, the, the topics bleed into each other so seamlessly that, you know, you end up with these bigger, longer discussions because they touch so many other things. Um, so it would have been very easy to go down that road and have that discussion. Maybe we'll circle back around to it. Uh, we have two more of the temptations of Jesus. We didn't talk about those. Since we did say he's tempted in all points like as we are, that would be the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And so those other two temptations would certainly be pre present. Uh, we didn't make it to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Um, and there may be other passages about temptation that we need to talk about. And we will. I will look at the schedule and see. When we can get back on. When we can get back on. 